You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. <clears throat> so today's um, AV is uh, kind of wonky, so don't worry, the sermon isn't very AV heavy. All you need is an open Bible. All right? My name is Lian An. I'm uh, one of the elders at the First Congregation at Redemption Hill Church. And Patrick was about to uh, read the passage, but I think I'll read the passage as I just stroll along the, uh, the sermon, okay? Um, you know, when you watch these people, well, some of these people and their baptism, what they've done is they've taken a step of faith, right? And that's something you will encounter in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, which is the passage we are going to go through. Some years ago, uh, my... CG in a previous church went on a mission trip. I probably told you this before, but it's worth telling again. Uh, it was a triumphant thing. You know, we went, we ministered to people, very encouraging. Um, wives, husbands, kids, uh, somewhere in, in Indonesia. And then we were on our way back in this dugout canoe, putt-putting with the outboard motor. We could see the, the station and we were coming close to it. The engine cut out. So what happens when the engine cuts out? The men look for the oars, they get up and they start paddling, right? So we did that, action men. The next thing is one child from behind said, hey, shouldn't we pray first? And that, that is when we realized that, hey, sometimes we just jump into action, we respond to situations, we, in a Christian context, we run ahead of God. Even when situations like this uh, it, it seems so common sense. Here's the all. Your boat is stopped. That's the destination. You can do it in 20 minutes. Why don't you do it? So this is what we see in this little story that I told you. And in a Christian context, this is what we see in 1 Samuel 14. The question to ask in 1 Samuel 14 is in the title of the sermon, where we place ourselves. Do we place ourselves into the hands of God? Or do we place ourselves ahead of God? Today's passage gives us a son and a father, uh, the son Jonathan, showing us what it looks like to place ourselves in the hands of God. And then the father, Saul, showing what it looks like to place ourselves ahead of God. Do these um, situations sound familiar to you? How frequently do you, do I, Instead of placing ourselves in the hands of God, do we run ahead of God? How do you respond to situations? Do you look for the proverbial door open and charge through the door? Or do you pray before you take a step forward? Do you commit yourself into the hands of God or do you run ahead of God? I pray that this account uh, of Saul and Jonathan will help us to place ourselves, help us to see what it looks like to place ourselves into the hands of God or to run ahead of God. Let me pray before we continue. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, this second week of Advent, as we, with great joy and with great hope, we celebrate once again the coming of Jesus Christ and we anticipate his coming again. Lord, as we preach these words, we pray that you will bless the words that come out of my mouth and that this, the words that I, I preach, Lord, will land in fruitful soil. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the first segment I'm going to read. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 to 15. Okay? 
First Samuel chapter 14, verse 1. Let's open our Bibles there. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migrion. The people who were with him were about 600, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priests of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Sene. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. Verse 11, So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. After that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, uh, killed about 20 men within, uh, within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Help us respond in faith. So what's the context? So the context, big picture view, the Philistines, the enemies of Israel in this story, they have been subdued in the days of Samuel. But Samuel has been aging. His sons proved to be worthless. And because of that, Israel wanted a king like their neighbor. God said, you want a king? I give you a king. So God chose for them Saul. Saul, in how he disobeyed God, disqualified himself from kingship. Uh, because he disobeyed Samuel, who said, wait for me before you offer sacrifices. He disobeyed this and in First uh, Samuel 13, God had disqualified him. And so, even though he was disqualified, here he is leading Israel. The battle is poised. You have Israel on one side, initially 3,000 men, but by the time we come to First Samuel 14, it's dwindled to 600 people. People have sort of leaked away, crossed over to the other side, gone back to their kampong, they have gone. 600 people left. In front of them are 30,000, at least 30,000 soldiers, plus horsemen, plus cavalry, so they are vastly outnumbered. The physical picture is this. 
Here is Saul in a cave under a tree on a little hill, and in front of the hill is a ravine, and you go down and up to the ravine, there's a little hill, and on that hill is the enemy. That is the context. Jonathan decides to do something. He had been waiting. Consider first his circumstances. What are his circumstances? He is with his father's army. They are vastly outnumbered. He's been waiting, waiting for some time. We don't know how long, but nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. The safer, more comfortable option is sit with your father under the cave and wait. But he doesn't take the safer, more comfortable option. He takes the scary option. He steps up and he steps out against daunting and frightening odds. What are the odds, right? Now, this isn't 600 men. This is, this is Jonathan and his armor bearer. And if you consider the last portion of 1 Samuel 13, the Philistines had imposed on Israel that, no, that only two people could find arms, Saul and Jonathan. Only they had swords. So you can imagine, right, here is Jonathan walking up, exploring, attacking the Philistines with his sword, and his armor-bearer is probably holding a sharpened spoon or something like that. The, dawn, the, the odds are daunting. The odds are daunting. Those are his circumstances. But let's consider his reasoning. What's his reasoning? His reasoning is, if you sit back and think and look through what's been happening through First Samuel, his reasoning is, is very simple. There was work to be done. There was a work of God to be done, and nobody was doing it. And what was this work? The work was that work that, that God had given to Saul. What is that work? The work was to gain victory over Israel's enemy. In other words, if you can couch it this way, it is a work of saving Israel. It is a work of salvation. So the, this is his reasoning. The work of salvation of God's people is just waiting to be initiated, waiting to be accomplished. The rationale for, for Jonathan to be acting under these circumstances, you can find that in chapter 14, verse 6. The second half of that. Let me read verse 6 again. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Listen to this. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. What I take this to mean is that I think Jonathan is expressing, I don't know if God is going to work through me, but here's the thing, there is work to be done. And even though it's just the two of us, if God wants it to work, it will work. Because it is not based on the two of us, it is based on the power of God and God's will, working through many or working through few. And so he, con he carries on his task. So we have considered his circumstance, his reasoning. Now let's consider his approach. What is his plan? His plan is, um, armor bearer, let's just go into the ravine, climb up to the hill, present ourselves to the garrison, to the guardhouse. And then depending on what they say, we will respond. If they say go away, we'll go away. If they say come in, we will go in. Now when, when the garrison, well this happens, right? So he goes, and when the garrison says come in, what does it look like to you, right? It looks like they are going to bring you into their camp. They're not going to give you a feast, right? They're going to kill these two guys. How would you describe Jonathan's action? 
you might call it brave on one hand. On the other hand, you might call it foolhardy. It's a death wish, right? But then, this is what faith in action sometimes looks like. You with nothing much in your hands, the enemy is huge, and you don't think about relying on your own strength because it's not going to work. You only know that you must rely on God's strength. And so, he moves forward. Where does he get this, this idea from? Did it come in a dream that his armor bearer said, hey, let's do this? We don't know. It's not disclosed. But what we do know is when he was doing this, when he was stepping forward, climbing up that little hill, and as the garrison sees him, he was placing himself in God's hands. He's not placing himself in the Philistines' hands, you know. If you have a small view of the, the action, yeah, he's placing himself in the Philistines' hands, but in the big view, this man is placing himself in God's hands, knowing that the sovereign God will give victory if that is God's will. So the battle begins. Uh, Saul, uh, Jonathan is invited with his armor-bearer, and the, the, the garrison, they don't expect it. And so, on his hands and knees, um, Jonathan climbs up and he gains victory. He climbed up on his hands and feet, verse 13, and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. So they gained this great victory. It wasn't a huge victory, but it was the beginning of a victory. It was an initiation of this action. It was someone taking the first step. So let's take a step back and consider Jonathan's actions. How do they speak to us in our circumstances? I think it will be helpful when we try and you know, unpack this, rephrase it again. And then we can begin to think about how this applies to us. In short, this is what's happening. There is work to do, but no one seems to be stepping up. And in a, in a circumstance of huge odds, what do I do? That is Jonathan's dilemma, right? His dilemma was, what do I do? Do you find yourselves in situations like that? You know that there's something that needs to be done. People around you sort of they're sitting on their hands and their haunches. They're sitting in their caves under their tree. Who is going to take the next step? How does Jonathan taking the initiative there speak to you? What circumstances are you in that might be calling you to action? Perhaps after a long time of waiting, perhaps when the safer route seems to be just wait for the leader to bring. I'll just wait, right? When the odds seem daunting, what circumstances are you in? I want to just further emphasize on the circumstance. Right? It's not just a circumstance of, oh, do I take that job? Um, do I run that marathon? No, right? It's actually more serious than that, right? Because Jonathan here is involved in the work of the salvation of Israel. So when I say, when I ask you, what circumstance are you in? Where nobody seems to be doing anything, where the fruit seems ripe for picking, where the odds seems daunting, it is the circumstance of salvation. It might be the circumstance of a salvation of a friend, of a relative. It might be the circumstance of a salvation of even a relationship. It is about salvation. So think about this 
and, and ask yourself, how does this circumstance speak to me? What do Jonathan's actions and God's response, what does it tell you about this whole situation? What does it tell you about God? It tells us one thing, right? God is faithful to his purpose. What is his purpose? The salvation of Israel. It also tells us God is faithful to his faithful people who step up in that work. And the third thing it tells us is God uses faithful people to accomplish his task. So as you think about Jonathan, as we begin to step away from Jonathan, think about those circumstances. There's one more thing I want you to think about regarding Jonathan and his armor bearer. And it is this, and it might not be very obvious, but it is this, that Jonathan is a leader. He's a leader of how many? He's a leader of one, right? But a leader of one is still a leader. And I say this because a lot of times you will say, oh, this is about leadership, it's about Saul, it's about kingship. I am not a leader kind of person. But if you consider your own life, the places God has placed you, there are people who listen to you. There are people who look up to you. There are people who are under some kind of authority under you. You are a leader. Most of us are leaders in those situations. All it takes is a party of two for you to become a leader. Are you, is God asking you to lead in your circumstances, in these situations, rather than waiting for somebody to lead? Will you ponder these things as we uh, depart from Jonathan? So, Jonathan is now fighting his little battle on the opposite hill, and Saul sort of rouses himself. He probably hears the battle, and he comes up and he sees something. We're going to talk about Saul and um, how he makes his decisions, starting from verse 16, but first... But first, let's look at verse 3. Let's consider Paul, uh, Saul's religiosity. Let's consider Saul's religiosity. Verse 3. Let me start from verse 2. Chapter 14, verse 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migran. The people who were with him were about 600. And listen to, to verse 3. Including Ahijah, the son of Ahitop, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Now this is Saul's apparent religiosity. It looks like he's got some paraphernalia, some device there that sort of connects him with God, right? What is that? Well, first he's got a priest. But you see how much care the author takes to tell you who this priest is? Who is this priest? This priest is a descendant of Ichabod. Where has the glory gone, right? When the priest, the one who should be leading Israel and Saul, should be Samuel. But Samuel is not in the picture. So Saul has installed his own priest. Not just that, the author doesn't call Ahitab, Ahijah. He doesn't call him a priest. He just names this guy. He's just named there. He's just an apparatus. What else is there? There is an ephod. What is an ephod? An ephod is sort of a garment that the priest would wear. And on the garment are some priestly devices that helps people, that helps the priest discern God's guidance. It's called the Urim and the Tumim. So Saul seems to have all the religious, external appearance of religion there. This is a warning. Saul's religiosity is a warning. Not to Saul, not to Israel, but to us. 
Because a lot of times, right, we have this religiosity, right? We come to church, we hold the Bible, we take communion, we sing songs, we worship God. But is it just an external religiosity? Or is it actually coming from the heart? Are you doing something so people will think something of you? Or are you doing something that just wells up and overflows from your heart? So that's Saul's religiosity, just to set the picture. And so now we look into Saul. He sees the battle and what does he do? He runs ahead of God in a few ways. The first way is he places his decisions ahead of consulting God. Let me read from verse 16 to 23. Chapter 14, verse 16 to 23. And the watchmen of Saul in Gebeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Avon. Saul placed his decisions ahead of consulting God. Now, at first reading, right, a lot of us would actually not feel uncomfortable with what Saul is doing, right? If you are a military commander, you are waiting for an opportunity, you see a battle, your two scouts are winning, what do you do? Do you say, guys, let's go, or do you say, let's pray and wait and then go? Most of us will do the latter, right? Which, which is why we are not very uncomfortable with Saul just, just charging. But, <clears throat> but just to make sure that this isn't Saul's way of thinking, the author emphasizes to us that in his mind, Saul runs ahead of God. Where do we see this? First, when Saul hears the tumult, what does he do? He says in verse 18, bring the ark of God here. There's this pretense, right? His religiosity. Let's ask God first. And then the, the author gives more pressure, right? So after verse 18, no, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. It's like, hurry up, you know, let's, let's do this thing. The battle is raging. Does Saul wait? He doesn't. He doesn't. Verse 19, so Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand, which means let's do this later. Let's just charge first. And what this shows is Paul, Saul places his decisions ahead of consulting God. When he says, bring the ark of God here, and then later he says, withdraw your hand. How familiar are we with all that, right? How familiar are we with all that, right? So he placed his decisions ahead of consulting God. How else does he run ahead of God? I think this is probably the most key, fundamental thing. He placed his agenda ahead of God. We see that in verse 24. 
And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Until I am avenged on my enemies. It is his own vengeance, rather than God's victory and God's justice that he is, that he is pursuing. And sometimes we may not be aware of it, but we might actually be doing something like that, right? We may be placing our agenda ahead of God. And sometimes our placing our agenda ahead of God can be masqueraded or camouflaged when we, like Saul, have this accompanying but fake religiosity. Which means when I make decisions, I appear to pray, or I pray, but it's, it's basically formulaic. In other words, I am, I am not doing it apart from God. I don't do things and God isn't present. I do things and I drag God along. God seems to be following me. And that is what Saul is doing. He places his agenda ahead of God. The other way that Saul runs ahead of God is he places his methods ahead of God. And for this, we read verse 24, verse 24 to verse 46. Let me read part of that. So, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So let me stop there. Instead of, so when you want to drive an army of God to fulfill God's purpose, what do you use, right? Perhaps you would use the love of God, the fear of God, God's purpose, God's laws, God's precepts to drive these, this army forward, right? But what Saul does is he imposes his own curses, restrictions, his own fast, his own conditions for his army. He's making them fear him more than they fear God. What did he say? He said, well, when you are fighting, you are not to eat until I have won, until we have won, until it is evening. Right? He says, here is the opportunity. Let's just pursue it. Don't eat until that is done. If you do that, that is a curse. This is a curse that comes from nowhere. It doesn't come from Scripture. It comes from his own heart. We do the same, right, don't we? We do the same. You know, sometimes you want to get your way, do your thing. There are passive, aggressive ways we, we go about to get our item on the agenda passed. There are ag- active, aggressive ways we do this as well. And whereas when Saul places decisions ahead of God, uh, ahead of consulting God, and whereas Saul places agenda of God, whereas these two are about Saul and God, 
when Saul uses methods that are not God's, he is relationally affecting the people around him. Our methods are manifested, or our false methods are manifested relationally with people. When we want to move them, manipulate them toward doing something we want. This is not an uncommon thing, right? What Saul is doing is not an uncommon thing. Running ahead of God isn't an uncommon thing. We see opportunities, we charge in. Manipulating people towards our intentions, not an uncommon thing. Who else in this room has not been opportunistic or impulsive when we see an open door? Let me share with you, right? Sometimes these impulses, these intentions, these desires are on the surface very good. But the way you go about doing it might not be right. So maybe a month or two ago, I was filled with this, this, um, this urge, this desire uh, to lead us all in this church towards prayer, right? And uh, I had decided after praying that, hey, let's do this. Let's do a Thursday evening prayer. It's still on, by the, by the way, but the details are a bit changed. So this is my intention. It sounds good. Ultimately, it's good. But maybe I was pursuing my own intention. Now, the thing is, when we place our methods ahead of God, there are consequences. There are consequences. And one of the consequences is how it affects people around you. So when I did that and I committed myself to the elders that this is what I plan to do, I had failed to consult the one that's really close to me. I failed to consult my wife, right? And by the time it came to her, I had realized through her uh, active, aggressive uh, posturing that I had failed. I hadn't failed God, but I had failed God in my relationship with my wife. I was, in a way, almost manipulating her into doing something that seemed good. So really, really be careful about your intentions. They may appear good, but how you go about doing it may not be right. And when that happens, there are going to be consequences. How do you diagnose something like this? How do you diagnose something like this? Um, how do you diagnose running ahead of God? Well, when we look at Jonathan, what is fundamentally the problem? What is the diagnostic problem with Jonathan? Why might the, the fundamental difference between Jonathan, sorry, the problem is Saul. What might the fundamental problem be between Jonathan and Saul? It is not impatience. It is not that Saul is impatient because that is too benign and too mild a problem. The problem is pride. Saul wanted to do things his way, according to his time, according to his methods. And here pride comes from a too high view of self and a not high enough view or a low view of God. So it is about pride. It is also about a lack of faith that, God, I'm missing this opportunity. If I don't take it, what's going to happen? It is your lack of faith that even if you miss this opportunity, God is still in control, right? So when you manipulate situations, when you run ahead of God and use your own methods, there are consequences. In this passage, what are the consequences? The most devastating consequence is in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 36 and verse 37. Let me read. So this comes sometime after this. Verse 36. Let us go down 
after, uh, this, then Paul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of God, uh, let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God. Verse 37, and Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. So here's the most devastating consequence when we run ahead of God. God's eventual silence. He either, speaks, speak, uh, he either stops speaking to us or when we have run ahead of him too much, our hearts become hardened, our ears deafened by our own voices that when he does speak, we don't hear. Either that or we don't seek or we don't hear God. So the first consequence is God's eventual silence when we start and keep running ahead of God. The other consequence will be the consequence on the people around him, right? So in Saul's situation, what was the consequence? We are an army at battle. The war is going to rage. The battle is going to rage the whole day. Leader, what are you telling me? Don't eat. I'm going to be hungry. I'm going to be starving, right? Which was the case. So when Jonathan discovered the, the honey and he ate it, his eyes brightened. And when he was told that his father said, don't eat of anything, he said, what a pity, right? We would have gotten a greater victory. So the consequence is, number one, failure to reach the full potential if we follow after God's way. The second consequence is, you know what it caused the people of Israel to do? It caused the people of Israel to sin. How, how did this happen? Saul said, Here's the king, his, his edict, his curse is, do not eat until, you, until we have a full victory. But in their desperate hunger, what did the people do? They killed animals in the land and they ate the animals with blood in it. And this is a Levitical law. When you eat blood, animal with blood in it, you have sinned against God. So the consequence of us running ahead of God, using our own methods, isn't just some pragmatic thing. It can sometimes lead to sin against God. And it also places his son in a difficult situation. So his, his son had actually eaten, and now Saul uh, found out that his son had eaten. And through the Urim and the Tumim, he had found that Jonathan was the one who caused judgment to come upon Israel because of the sin. And what was the consequence? He used the Urim and Tumim, and eventually... He concluded through this that Jonathan was to die for the sin that Israel had committed. Right? He, this is an innocent man who is going to die for a curse that his father had placed upon him. This is what happened. And how did Israel respond to this? Israel delivered. Israel delivered the son, right? Uh, we see this in verse 45. Let me read verse 45. So this is after Saul had sentenced Jonathan to death for eating against his, his curse. Verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. So the people ransomed Jonathan. To, to, to ransom somebody means here's a person who has this debt of sin or debt of punishment 
and I will pay the penalty for this. So I ransom him out of this. Keep that thought in your head as we, as we leave this battle. The battle is drawing to a close. The victory has been won. The victory would have been greater if Saul had not run ahead of God. But God still reigned and there's still victory. And as we leave this, we, we think about what 1 Samuel 14 is about. It is less about the traits and the attributes of a faithful child of God than it is about people, than it is about persons. The person of Jonathan, the person of Saul, you and me, who have things in us that remind us, that echo, that resonate with Jonathan and Saul, people who are flawed, people who are flawed in how we respond to circumstances, even Jonathan, even Saul, you look hard enough, you will find a flaw. So 1 Samuel 14 is about persons. But it points to us, it points to our fallenness, but most of all, it points to another person. It points to a greater person. Now, that person isn't Adam. Why do I bring Adam in? Adam, who's Adam? Adam is the first man created, given an edict by God. God just told him, here are all the trees uh, and the fruit thereof. You can eat of anything except this tree. What did Adam do? He ran ahead of God and he ate of the fruit of the tree, right? And when he did that, he placed a curse of death on all of humanity. He placed a curse of death on all of us. A, a curse of not just death, but brokenness. All the brokenness that we feel that lead people to oppression, to feelings of self-harm, all the defeats that we feel, the brokenness, the darkness in our lives, all that emanate from us. The consequence is there is a debt on us. And for us to escape from that debt, somebody has to pay that debt, right? There is a ransom for all humanity. And how is that ransom paid? Psalm 49 tells us man cannot himself pay the ransom. Psalm 49 verse 7 to 8. Truly no man can ransom another, for the ransom of their life is costly. Man cannot ransom himself. God in his grace in the Old, Old Testament gave the Israelites a device, a, a way to ransom themselves temporarily when God instituted the system of sacrifices. But that is not sufficient, and that will never be sufficient. What is sufficient? The person that I've been talking about, the one who ransomed himself, the one who himself paid the price so that the, the cost, the price that Adam placed upon us can be paid. Now, when you look at how the people ransomed the son of Saul, who is Jonathan, what has happened in the greater picture is the Son has come to ransom us from the wrath of the Father. This is Jesus Christ our Lord. So this passage in that way points to this person who is Jesus Christ. The passage leads us to Jesus Christ. Now when we compare Jesus with the other people in this, um, in this chapter, Saul placed himself ahead of his father did Jesus Christ place himself ahead of his father? No, in his incarnation, even though he was equal with God, he did not consider it too low for him to come on earth and to put on humanity. In his incarnation, he did not place himself 
ahead of God. In his early ministry, when he was tempted by Satan, tempted to turn stone to bread, tempted to uh, throw himself off, um, off the temple, tempted to accept Satan's temptation, to call Satan his Lord, to bow down before him. Did Jesus Christ run ahead of God? No, he did not. He did not. He resisted the temptation of Satan. He did not run ahead of God. And most importantly, in, in Gethsemane, the garden where Jesus was before he went to the cross, Matthew 26, 39. So Jesus knelt before the Father in this garden, and these are his words. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He did not run ahead of God. He did not run ahead of the Father. He is the greater Jonathan who took that step towards his people's salvation. He is also the greater Saul who would never run ahead of the Father. As the greater Jonathan who placed himself in God's hand in this, in this battle, Jesus in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, these are his words. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Where Jonathan committed himself in battle before the Father, before God, Jesus committed his spirit to God, knowing that he was dying for the sin and the brokenness of all those who would come to him and call him as their Lord and Saviour. Because this Jesus would not place himself ahead of God, ahead of his Father, and because this Jesus placed himself wholly in his Father's hands, because he did this, what are the implications to us? Number one, we have been ransomed. We who come to him, we who are broken and hope-starved and joy-starved and oppressed and realize that we can't, we can't find our way we have been ransomed. We have been purchased from the iron grip of fear, the iron grip of faithlessness, the iron grip of self-promotion and self-centeredness. We have been ransomed. Because this Jesus has done these things, we can have the faith and the courage to take that first step up that hill towards that enemy when nobody else is doing it, when the odds are daunting, when all I have is a sharpened spoon, I have that faith, I have that courage to take the first step. And because this Jesus has done that, I can trust God in the outcome. You know what trusting God in the outcome looks like? It looks like I have prayed about this. I think this is what God wants me to do. I will do this. And because I've done these things, whatever the situation, however it turns out, even if I lose the battle, I have safety, I have assurance even in my loss because God oversees the loss. The outcome isn't important. What is important is my first steps taken after I have come before God, before the true King. So behold the Lamb. Do you see Him today? Do you see Him? Will you know Him? Jesus is the man, the humble leader and the true King. So how will we respond? How are you going to respond today? Let me invite you to respond in these ways. Number one, keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. In our circumstances, in the hills we face, in the opportunities that pre present themselves before us, 
in our pursuing our own interests, our own methods, our own timing. Keep our eyes on Jesus. He has ransomed us. He has freed us from pursuing our own things. That's the first thing. The second thing is take the initiative. When we take the initiative, we want to be courageous. We want to be surrendered. We want to be faithful. We want to be trusting. Why do we need courage? Because it takes a lot of courage to climb up that hill. If you are a non-believer, if you have come and you might have a shell of religiosity or you're just tottering, teetering between is Jesus God, is Jesus not God, what is stopping you? Is it courage that's stopping you? Is it because no one around you is moving? If that is you, brother or sister, look around you. The one next to you is probably somebody who has taken that step. And if you are one of those who, I don't know if I should take that, that next step, after service, turn to that person and, hey, pray for me, let me talk to you. Speak to that person. God is inviting you to take that first step. Are the odds daunting? Do you face oppression? Do you face resistance um, against accepting Jesus? Talk to people who have faced these, um, faced these odds. Talk to people like Matthew Iro, who come, has come to know Jesus Christ against great odds. Where's Matthew? That's Matthew. Okay? Speak to people. What are the odds that face you? Whatever the odds you're facing, let me remind you, when you take this step, who is on your side? The creator and the sustainer God. You don't need anybody else next to you. So courage to take that first step. What about those of us who are Christians who have already taken that first step? What is God challenging you to do? Is it, is it a task? Is it a task of salvation? Is it a task of saving a loved one? Is it a need in the family? Is it a need in the church? I think specifically, is it a need that is directed towards the salvation of souls? Is God asking you to take a step up that hill? Do you need courage? Take courage in Jesus Christ. Take courage from Jesus Christ. So we take the initiative with courage. We take the initiative surrendered. What that means? What, what does that mean? It means, Lord, if this is where you want me to go, like I said just now, whatever the outcome, my success is not in the outcome. My success is in obeying God. I am surrendered to the outcome. It doesn't matter. And uh, without faith, this is not going to be helpful, right? So we take the initiative with courage, with surrenderedness, and with faith. Because courage alone, without faith in God, is just going to fall and fold into itself. Because you're depending on yourself, and you're not depending on God. So the initiative has to be courageous, surrendered, and faithful, and trusting. Trusting God in the outcome. So that's the second thing, right? The third thing that we should respond in is to stop placing ourselves ahead of God. What does that look like? It looks like stop trusting in yourself, stop trusting in man. Instead, at the deepest level, trust in God. What it means, what it doesn't mean is that we sit inert and passive. If there's a decision to do, uh, it doesn't mean that I don't make decisions. It doesn't mean that I'm just sitting back and waiting for people. It means we, after having prayed and consulted God, we take first steps. We see consequences. We see opportunities. We grasp them. We grasp these. But we do this having consulted God. And I believe that if we keep our eyes on Jesus, when we take the initiative that is before us, having consulted God, 
when we stop placing ourselves ahead of God, I believe God will be honoured and we will be guided. And in whatever you choose to do, whatever step you take, you'll have this great peace that surpasses understanding. Because 1 Samuel 14 points us to Jesus Christ, the person. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage that on one level speaks of battles and decisions and surrendering. Uh, Lord, we face those battles on a daily, on a weekly basis. Sometimes we function at such a non-spiritual level that we don't even realize that in our actions we haven't consulted you, that we don't even realize that in our own actions, pursuing our own ways, we are walking away from you. So Lord, I pray that as your words descend into our brothers and sisters' hearts here, that you will give them courage, first of all, to consult you, to be with you, to be open to your guidance. And secondly, Lord, as and when you guide them, that they will take those few steps of courage, of faith, and of surrenderedness. And Lord, I pray that as you guide us all, that we will not uh, be so prideful as to step uh, before you and place ourselves ahead of you. We thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.